What could feel more upsetting and intimidating than talking to children about the death of their sibling? Such conversations are sometimes part of what the Courageous Parents Network community faces. This far-ranging conversation with pediatric psychiatrist Dr. Elena Lister is for any parent, clinician, teacher, or counselor who is caring for a child anticipating or experiencing the death of a sibling from illness. It is prompted by the release of the book she co-authored with Dr. Michael Schwartzman, Giving Hope, Conversations with Children About Illness, Death, and Loss. This book is filled with such practical guidance, including scripts to use with children. I have a big preamble at the beginning of the conversation, so we'll end my intro here. Enjoy. Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. I am here with Dr. Elena Lister, author of the book, Giving Hope, which she co-authored with Dr. Michael Schwartzman with help from Lindsay Tate. The subtitle of this book is Conversations with Children About Illness, Death, and Loss, which is very important to name that subtitle because giving hope all by itself could be about a lot of things. But this is very specifically about having conversations with children about illness, death, and loss. Elena, I was really eager to talk with you about your work in this book in particular because Courageous Parents Network is all about giving parents and caregivers the confidence to do all the difficult things, the impossibly seeming things involved in parenting seriously ill children mm. and their siblings. And this work often includes, sadly, navigating the death of the child and everything that follows during bereavement. Thus, it involves talking to the surviving siblings about their brother or sister's illness and death. And sometimes it involves talking to the child, him or herself, if they are developmentally and cognitively able to talk about their own end of life. I know from my own experience as a parent whose oldest child my daughter Taylor was two when her little sister Cameron was diagnosed with a fatal genetic condition and then was four when Cameron died. The biggest concern my husband Charlie and I had was how to talk with Taylor at every step along the way. This was a huge deal for us. We were very fortunate and were able to find and get professional help for our work with Taylor, but finding a good professional was surprisingly difficult. We had some false starts. All of this went down for us over 20 years ago, and this book is just coming out now, but this book would have been a fabulous addition and would have gone a long way toward helping Charlie and me feel as confident as possible to do that very difficult work. I say all of this because of how it contextualizes why talking about death is so hard for us in the 21st century and why we hesitate or avoid doing it but then you make the case for why it's so important and helpful for the children to talk honestly with them about death and grief. And then the book provides very practical, actionable guidance, language, and structure for how to do this difficult work. 
So I want to thank you for authoring the book for parents and caregivers and for now taking the time to talk about the book and about me with Courageous Parents Network. So after that long introduction, <laughs> if you could please introduce yourself. I am an adult and child psychiatrist. I'm on the faculty at Columbia and Cornell. So I teach medical students, residents, and faculty about how to talk with patients and their families when they're facing an illness. And that is medical training that I never had. So that is the bulk of what I do now. I also have a practice in therapy where I work with people who are facing all sorts of life challenges, some of which are illness, dying and death. And as is not uncommon in life, deaths happen. And I've been working with people about something else when a loss happened both adults and children, and sort of seeing how important it is to help and understand who you are first facing illness and death, and then help you processing the grief with your child. The other thing I want to say is that I, like you, had an experience. I speak about that quite frankly in the book. I speak about it frankly all over because when we had it happen, we did not find good help. And my husband and I felt we were swimming in waters in the deep end. And even with our training, we were trained, but we were parents at that point. We weren't doctors, we were parents with a severely ill child and an agony for her. So our daughter was diagnosed at age four with leukemia, died at age six, and her older sister at the time was seven at diagnosis and nine when her sister died. So we had both a dying child and a sibling that we were trying to help shepherd through this process and then her older sister through grieving afterwards. The point of writing this book was in my work, I felt like I wasn't coming across information that was helpful to me. And we felt so alone in the process. Now, again, like you, this was 25 plus years aging me 25 plus years ago. I know that things have changed, but I feel like my role is to be part of that change. That's why I teach medical students and residents how to talk about illness and dying and death with patients. I did not want other people to experience that aloneness. It is hard enough to be in a family where there's an ill child, nonetheless, to feel alone. And so the point of the book is to be a companion as you face these things that none of us want to face, illness, death, and loss. As we'll get into it in the book, and I will just encourage any parent who's in this situation to get a copy of it because it really is an excellent companion and guide to do all the things that you just described. It's also honestly an excellent resource for clinicians who have not received training in how to do this difficult work. I have recently been surprised to learn that medical school generally, and then pediatricians specifically, do not receive training. Grief training is not part of the core curriculum. Obviously, your students are lucky. How is it that they're getting it? It is a required part of their training. It's in their second year of medical school. In their first year, we've introduced a sort of narrative medicine format. They keep a journal about what they're seeing and experiencing. And then in the second year, they have specific lectures dedicated to various things like ethical decisions, being a humane physician. And that is where I come in. I talk about dealing with a dying child in particular. 
But the reason why it is not included, I think, is because it is unbearable. And I think physicians, you know, we get that white coat and we feel like we are going to conquer disease and that it's inculcated in the culture that it's a failure if you aren't able to save a patient. And I don't see it that way. I think it's the state of the art of medicine at the time. It may be availability of resources. I mean, you know, there may be other things going on, but it's rarely the physician's failure in a broad way. So I think we find it unbearable. Any people who are in a sort of caretaking role, parents included, find it unbearable when we can't ease the suffering of the people that we care about. So that's one reason why it wasn't in the training. Nobody wanted to think about it. The death of a child in particular, people will say, oh, yes, you know, the death of an elderly person, that's in the natural order of things. The death of a child is not. And we don't like to recognize that it happens. When our daughter was ill and then died at the hospital that she was at, 46 children died in that six-month period that she died. And there was no training at that time for those physicians dealing with that. And we were floored and upset because they couldn't help us since they were overwhelmed themselves with the pain of it all. So I think the main reason why it's not taught is because it's too painful. You've identified something that's very, very important, which is that this sort of training preparation and working towards acceptance of something that is so upsetting, but still very real and possible, isn't just because it benefits the child and family members, but it also benefits the clinicians who care deeply about the well-being of the their patient and their patient's family. And they themselves silently suffer for not being mm -hmm. able to help. It sounds like you are acknowledging that it is as much for the clinicians as it is for the families. Absolutely. And also, I'm going to add in that many religious figures do not get training in this either. Even in a position of counseling, pastoral counseling or religious counseling of any sort, they are not trained to talk to people about dying and death, yet they're faced often with being present at very, very tender moments in a family's life. I feel like all of us need more experience just being with what we think is unbearable, but our point is it is bearable. And as my mother-in-law, who died very recently, she was, she was 98, said to me while my daughter was ill, pain shared is pain halved. And this, to me, was a very core teaching that seems relatively obvious, but I didn't get. I thought I had to be stiff and strong and not show any emotion. But in fact, when you share the unbearableness, it becomes bearable. And that's what we wanted the book to do, to help parents and children be in the experience together, facing what's inevitable in life, which is loss. What you say in the book is, what is mentionable is manageable. Can you yeah. elaborate on that term? It's so helpful and I believe it to be so true. I wanna credit Fred Rogers mm -hmm. with a form of it because mm -hmm. he began that idea and we just sort of shortened it a bit basically. There is a Buddhist belief that what does not work its way out works its way in. Yeah. And so if we do not acknowledge our feelings and let them out, including very difficult feelings, then they eat away at us inside. We can't make 
sadness go away. We can shut it off for a while. We can put it behind a wall. But what I say about grief and facing difficult things is you can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can only go through it, as the Helen Oxbury book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, says. Okay. And, <laughs> I love that book, yes. Yeah. And so there is no way around it. It will be something you have to go through when it happens or later. And often when I give talks, residents, families, parents come up to me and say, when I was younger, there was a loss and no one talked about it. And in the book, we give some examples of that, where if you're able to talk about it, it becomes more accessible. I'm sharing it with you. We can metabolize this together. If I can learn to know what I'm feeling, and I can tell you what I'm feeling, I also can receive the kind of nurturance I need or the space I need to have time to myself to process it. So it becomes manageable because we can communicate with other people. And when we carry things all by ourselves, because we think it's forbidden to talk about it, it just destroys our ability to form positive relationships as well. I'll add in one last thought. When we put a lid on difficult feelings, we also put a lid on the wonderful feelings in life. So if you do not let yourself feel sadness, if you do not talk about it, you also can't access happiness. So it's this paradox. We want to just shut off the difficult stuff, but that is not our way our human minds work. You become muted. Yes. And I, I know that feeling of just feeling muted across the emotional spectrum. Such a great word, muted. Absolutely. You know, Courageous Parents Network is first and foremost for parents and secondarily for clinicians caring for children living with serious illness. So what we're going to talk about is really in the context of a brother or sister dying, as opposed to a classmate or a teacher or a grandparent or a pet. This okay. book covers the whole spectrum of loss of somebody in your community who your child knows and cares about. For the purpose of our conversation, we're going to be specific to sibling illness and sibling death. I remember for my husband and me, as I said at the beginning, that we sought guidance for how to care for little Cameron, who was never going to grow up to mm -hmm. be cognitively aware of what was happening to her. But we had a, her older sister who we had to use our words to set her expectations for her sister's life to then help her through her sister's end of life, to then help her in the years that followed. Our oldest child is now 25. Oh. And I will tell you, the death of her sibling at age four reverberates even today in ways that have surprised her and have really surprised Charlie and me, who've not only did the best we could, but thought we did a pretty good job. And that's been a little humbling. Even if you do a great job at this difficult thing, it is such a difficult thing that it never goes away. I mean, we know as parents that it never goes away. And I have seen with my older daughter that it just doesn't go away. And you talk about that in the book. And that is why it is so important to do it as well as possible. 
we did receive fabulous counsel around when we knew that her younger sister would die sometime likely before the age of three. And we said, well, what do we tell Taylor? We were just told to set our expectations that Cameron would never walk or talk. And then when Cameron was actively dying, the way it actually happened, this is a long windup to prove your point in the book. She was in the last five days of her life and we knew she was at end of life. She had her final pneumonia and we had decided not to treat this pneumonia because we had concluded that her quality of life was such that it was time. And we went purely to pain and symptom management. We had a phenomenal community of friends and family who surrounded us. And we were trying to keep life as normal as possible for Taylor up until the very, very end, because we didn't know how long it was going to take for Cameron, who had stopped eating and drinking. So we tried to take Taylor to school. Mm. And that morning, it was a Monday, she didn't want to go to school. And she just refused. She started crying. And, you know, she was too young to tell us what she was worried about or knew was happening. But she knew, as you say, children know. So it was at that point, with help from her therapist, we were working with a psychologist that we told her that Cameron was going to die and we had language for that. So for the last three days of Cameron's life, Taylor knew that her sister was dying. Now, I don't believe she fully understood what that meant, but we did name it. It did make a big difference to us, at least, because this profound, deeply painful thing was happening in our home. While we had this chirpy little four-year-old going on about her business, Luckily, you know, aunts and uncles and friends and godparents scooped her up and showed her a good time out of the house and in other places. I will say, just to conclude my own personal piece of this, is that the one mistake I think Charlie and I made, when she went to bed, Cameron was alive. And Mm. when she woke up the next morning, Cameron had not only died, but her body wasn't in that home anymore. And I believe that the fact that this four-year-old, that there was, she went to bed with a her beloved sister alive in the house and woke up and every part of her sister physically was gone. I think that that perhaps was damaging. I wonder about that. My husband and I wonder about that. Well, first of all, I want to credit you with the ability to reflect back Because one of the things we really emphasize is knowing who you are as a parent, first and foremost, is crucial. I'm not going to go psychiatrist on you. I don't know you well enough, much as I'd like to know you better. I can say you you brought up so many important things. One, that even children at the age of four have an understanding of death. They have seen death. They've seen death in nature. You've bought flowers and they died. Leaves fall off trees. They come across a dead worm on the sidewalk. If you watch any Disney film, they're rife with death. So you're not introducing them to something that they don't know about. What you're doing is providing them a space to sort it out with you. So that's one thing. I think we all underestimate how much even a young child can understand. Secondly, it's a process. So 
you had that conversation with Taylor, and then there were years, days, weeks, years after that that keeps getting reworked. And what you're describing with Taylor is that she had a four-year-old experience of Cameron dying, and then she probably had an eight-year-old experience of Cameron dying, and a 12-year-old, and a 16-year-old. At each point, she kind of has greater developmental understanding, and she revisits what happened. And if you're available to process with that with her again, she gains from the experience. So even though she did not witness Cameron dying and she was not there when Cameron was taken away, you have not, and no parent has lost the opportunity to continue to process it with their child. You can go back over and over and over again. And even I have said to my children, I think I made a mistake here. You know, I wish I had and then whatever it is. And I think that's a wonderful thing for children to see because it models acknowledging, thinking back and reflecting on what we do and acknowledging its impact. But for all we know, it may have been the perfect way to handle it for Taylor. I think that the sequelae are inevitable. Um, and I can say from my own experience that my older daughter who was nine when Liza died, carried that all the way through and at any landmark time, at her graduation from high school, her graduation from college, her wedding, she recently became a mom. All of those things stir it up all over again. I call uh, grief the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> because for the rest of your life, it is a part of what you are. And that brings me back to what is mentionable is manageable because if you, you gave Taylor, and this is what we hope parents would do, words to describe and we really advocate not using words like the person is gone or they're resting because those words worry children because we say gone and resting all the time. And then when they try to go to sleep at night, they get scared. Wait a minute, I'm resting. Does that mean I'm going to disappear for good? Giving your child words that are common parlance allows them to be understood by other people and for them to be able to name what happened it's very, very important that if you can tolerate your own feelings about what's going on, then you can give space to your child. And if you create that bond early on, they will come to you at 8, at 12, at 16 and say, you know, I was thinking more about when my sibling died. And I don't know, I have questions I didn't ask you before. What was XYZ? Why did XYZ happen? So you're creating a bond with a parent at that time, parent and child, that is a foundation for talking about any difficult stuff. This we really deeply believe. So even though we're focusing on illness, death, and loss, we think it enables kids and their parents to talk about, in our way of thinking about it, you could start talking about death before there's a death in the family, because death is ubiquitous. And then when there's a, a loss in the family or an illness, talking about it straightforwardly, not complicatedly, being prepared to answer some questions which make you feel like a deer in the headlights. Oh my God, what do I say to that? And I have some thoughts about what do you do when a child asks you something and you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to say. And then making it clear that you welcome talking about it at any time. So I call these losses that happen early on, like for these siblings, an emotional splinter it's in there and it stays there and we got to keep working it out all the way through life. 
But that doesn't mean that the person is, I mean, sometimes there are gifts that come with that. It is not only damaging. Learning that you have these feelings does make for deeper connections to other people and deeper relationships with other people. So I do believe that's the giving hope part. One, you can teach a child that they can face difficult stuff. You taught Taylor that. And then two, that in so doing, they can share feelings with other people and build deeper connections. And that's where the good stuff in life comes from. There is no love without loss, but that love is so sweet. And that's what we want to help people have. And if you, as we were saying earlier, if you shut off the grief, you shut off the love, the capacity to open to love. I was struck by the word tolerate, being willing to tolerate it so that you can process it internally, which then enables you to have conversations with your other children or your spouse or your other family members or friends for that matter. Yeah. Which is critical, by the way, to honoring your child's legacy is being willing to touch the tough stuff. I'm curious about what you would say to parents who are aware of how much pain they themselves are in, whether their child is living or has just died. It doesn't really matter the timeline, but they're in so much pain personally, they don't feel confident to do that work and name the things and mention the things with their surviving children. What do you say to those parents? First of all, it's a ubiquitous experience. It happens all the time because you're overwhelmed yourself as a parent taking care of an ill child and the well child trying to navigate both of those worlds and help hopefully bring them together in some way. So first and foremost, learn to take care of yourself. We caregivers forget that. If you as a parent are not giving yourself time and space to sort out what you feel, to name it for yourself, to seek comfort in some way, then when you interact with your child, it's noise that interferes with your emotional availability to them. You as a parent need that time. It can even be a few minutes. I know how unrealistic it feels when you're taking care of an ill child or a well child after their sibling has died to say, yeah, I'm going to go take two hours and go for a walk. You can't do that. You're on the front lines in a way. But a few minutes is really important or having therapy or speaking to a religious counselor of some sort partner or friends. Some people journal, they turn to music, they turn to art. You know, learning what gives you space to sort out what you feel and solace in letting it out and naming it. If you do that, it is actually more bearable than we think. We fear feelings. And once we're doing them and feeling them, they're difficult, but they're not unbearable actually. Secondly, I don't think it's bad to cry in front of your children. I think your children need to see you cry because otherwise, like, their sibling died and you're not crying. I mean, it's abnormal. And you're modeling for them that when we're sad, we sometimes cry. Not always, but sometimes we do. And they don't have to cry. But this is one way that you express what you're feeling. The rule of thumb we kind of think about is that you stay several steps less upset than your child. 
So if you're going to do, and parents who've taken care of an ill child are probably familiar with this, this kind of wailing and keening, sobbing that comes when your child dies or is facing death, that you do apart from your child. But if you're talking with your child and you begin to weep, but you can still communicate, that's actually sharing something with them and it teaches that they can share it with you. So then pain shared is pain half. There goes my mother-in-law again. You're bearing it together. So it becomes more tolerable. Just to be clear, there's a whole chapter in this book on a death within the immediate family, specific and practical support. In that, you have a section on the death of a sibling. I'm reminded of the idea of doing things in parallel, that you and your child are in this together and you are still the parent, but you're moving in parallel, like driving in a car or going mm -hmm. on a walk or even mm -hmm. sitting at the table doodling together. We're not looking at each other moments, but we're very much in the same physical space and mm -hmm. we are on the same topic, even if we're not necessarily naming it explicitly, but we're drawing mm -hmm. around it or we're sharing emotions around it. That is doable. I loved what you have in here for art therapy, that you can invite children, especially, well, really people of any age, but particularly children to draw or paint or whatever the, the medium is to use art as a form of expressing themselves if the words maybe feel too hard. And a parent could do that with their child. They, you could draw together or paint together as a way of being in your feelings together. Yes, in fact, we have an example in the book of a parent who was with a child and the, the spouse had died and the child wasn't talking about anything. So the parent takes out crayons and whatever and starts drawing and says, do you want to draw? And as he's drawing, he's naming, yeah, I'm going to use a lot of black because I'm feeling really sad and so on. And eventually this opens up the conversation. So out of art and drawing, you provide a form in which you can name things. And children often connect colors and feelings. So I'm feeling really red today. They may not yet know that that means mad. They may not even call it, I'm feeling really red today, but you gave them paper and crayon, they're gonna do a lot of red <laughs> or black or gray. Or, so yeah, the other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of the, how bearable it is, we all dose ourselves with the pain. Pain after a sibling dies is overwhelming, but children especially can sometimes put it aside and be present for whatever they're doing. That's adaptive. You know, they're not not grieving. The grief is still in them. They're just sort of waiting till another time when they can bear it. They're refueling. And so doing things with your child that are not about the grief actually help them be able to express the grief at another time because they're refueling during that. That's why, as you did with Taylor, they need to go out and have fun doing other things. They need to remember that they're still children and that their lives are not going to be completely disrupted by what happened. They'll be disrupted, but not so completely that they can still go brush their teeth in the morning and have play dates and go to the park and all those other things. And also that you can tolerate them doing that. And sometimes what parents learn to do when they have an ill or dying child 
is there the sibling goes off and does something with other people who are less impacted at the moment. And then you can spend the time as a parent sobbing hysterically or calling a therapist or calling a friend or writing in a journal or drawing. And then when the child comes back, you've regrouped. You've had your chance. You And then you sort of, okay, now I'm, I've dosed myself. I've been in it. And now I can, because I gave myself that time, put it someplace so that I can be with my child. Very helpful to use that word dose for ourselves and yeah. also know that our children are doing it without even realizing that that's what they're doing because yeah. they are adaptive. Children are especially adaptive and we are capable of tolerating a great deal and are made for survival, for resiliency and survival. Do you work at all with children who themselves are sick and anticipating the possibility of their own death? And if so, how do you coach parents? Mm. What do you advise and coach parents with regard to talking or opening the door to conversations with their children about the possibility or certainty of their own end of life? I want to say, I mean, we had that experience. My daughter asked me directly at, when she was five and three quarters, am I going to die from my leukemia? I'm faced with that question, and I was never going to lie. But that allowed us to all be together with her dying. So I think it's very, very hard to imagine, because it just breaks our hearts, that our child knows they're facing death. Most children sense it. And there's a beautiful book called Armfuls of Time that is stories of children who say to healthcare professionals, I know I'm dying, but I'm not going to tell mommy and daddy because they would be too upset and they haven't told me about it. And I've spoken about this in grand rounds at various medical centers where someone presents a case to me where a child is acting up at home who's dying. And we find out that the parents have not talked about it with them and they are just overwhelmed with what they're feeling inside and have no place to go with it. So I want to encourage parents to not be afraid of that. You can explore it. You don't have to necessarily say, you are going to die from your illness. But you can open up questions that eventually allow them to see that they can raise it. Am I going to die from this? And then you have the opportunity to answer. And that's a tough question to answer, yeah. For the child who hasn't yet broached it themselves, what's a prompt that a parent could use? There are a lot of them. That's such a great question. So one could be, have you heard the doctors talking about your sickness? Because often, unfortunately, doctors will step out of a hospital room, and then they're talking in the hallway. Sometimes they talk in the room. An astute child is listening to every word that is said. So have you heard the doctors talking and what did you hear? That's one. How do you think you're doing is another one because that may open up, well, I'm not getting better. Okay, well, do you think you are going to get better? I don't know. Then you have a conversation going and you might be able to say, well, we don't know for sure either, but it looks as though your sickness is so big that the doctors are having a hard time making you better. And then you've introduced it and then you go stepwise and so on. Another would be, have you had thoughts about your illness? Or as in your situation, if someone else has died, 
let's say, even it's a grandparent, you know, grandpa died. Have you had thoughts about when people die and what makes them die? And then you're opening up a conversation about death in general, which a child might then use to walk through the door and say, is that going to happen to me? Then you've got the conversation going. I want to emphasize if a child comes forward to you with the question, you don't have to answer that question right away at that moment. It takes enormous strength. I really hope that parents can come back to it and basically say, yeah, it looks as though we don't have the medicines right now that are going to make you better enough. And you are not going to be able to live with this sickness and you are going to die. And we're all going to be together and we're all going to go through it together. And then you open up the possibility of helping a child think about what happens after they die. My daughter thought that she was going to still be able to communicate with me. So I endorsed that. You know, I said, yes, we're going to be together in our hearts. We're not going to communicate the way we used to, like in voices. It'll be more in our hearts. You have a chance to offer a child comfort. And if you don't name it, you can't offer them comfort about it either. And surprisingly, there is comfort. I deeply know it is hard, but I also know that every parent that I've talked with who acknowledges it with a dying child has been really glad they did. I have not once come across in all my clinical years, and I'm aged enough to say decades, in which a parent regretted telling them, but they need to feel prepared to deal with what happens after. On that note, your book anticipates so many of the possible ways a conversation might begin and all of the possible ways a conversation might unfold. You even talk about anticipating the types of questions that siblings will receive after their brother or sister has died, including helping your children answer the question, do you have any brothers or sisters oh, or how think. many brothers or sisters do you have? I, have, as a parent, had to you know, gear myself up for answering the question, how many children do you have? And you are in here helping parents help their siblings answer how many siblings do you have? One of the things we wanted to bring forward was that some um, young children, children of all ages, find it so difficult to talk about the loss that if they're asked, do you have any siblings? And let's say it was just the two of them and their sibling died. They may say no. And that as a parent, that can be heartbreaking to hear. I encourage parents to respect that. It is not that they are denying the sibling's existence or you know, their own grief. They just can't manage the social interchange about it. And we grownups find that sometimes too, so we can understand that. But you can, yes, I had a sister and she died. Some people teach saying, I have a sister and she died mm -hmm. because somebody's always with us in our memories and in our hearts. And it's interesting. I have a son who was born after our daughter died. And if he was asked, and I think as you noted about Taylor, he would feel fine about this being said, do you have any siblings? He would mention his sister who died before he was born because that was part of our family ethos. Mm -hmm. My older daughter, when she went to sleepaway camp after her sister died, had a harder time and would just say no. And both are completely reasonable. I remember, I don't know how many years it was after Cameron had died, Taylor drew a picture. She was in elementary school and she drew a picture of her family. Yeah. And oh, you know, in the early days, she would draw a picture 
in the very early days, she did draw a picture of Cameron in some format. And then one time she drew a family picture and Cameron wasn't, and this was, I think several years later, she drew a picture and Cameron wasn't in the picture. And I was thinking, so obviously there's been a developmental shift here. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me at all. I was just, you. I mean, it bothered me for a hot second. And then I was like, you know, Taylor's doing what Taylor needs to do. There's no part of me that thinks Taylor's not aware or thinking about her sister. I don't yeah. remember if I asked her about it. I think I did not. I didn't want to challenge her with the picture, so I didn't say anything. But I do remember there was a picture later on where Cameron was not showing up. I think it's wonderful, actually, that you didn't ask her about it. I mean, you could just ask, oh, so this is the family, and who's this and who's that in a general way. But children can feel easily ashamed if they're not expressing all the emotion about their sibling who died that everybody else seems to have. So I think it was great because you just accepted that right now, this is how she needs to present. I wanna encourage other parents to feel the same. Your child will go back and forth with how they feel at ease um, talking about their sibling who died. Fortunately, in our society, children don't frequently die. It's not something that we're all good at talking about and maybe you found this, I found it socially, it's a real conversation stopper. If you say my child died, people just don't know what to do and would not want a child being put in the position of having to comfort someone else about the fact that their sibling died. So it might be just the right thing to do that Taylor did, that when she, she's gonna bring this picture maybe into school and have to talk about it, that she didn't go there with them. So a parent being able to accept wherever their child is about it is really helpful for them. You recommend to bereaved parents who have surviving children against them leaving the bedroom of the child who died exactly as it was before death. Yes. Can you say more about that? Why is that your advice? I'm really glad you came back to that because it's a common natural inclination. We all do it, you know, adults do it about an adult in their lives as well. And what it conveys to a sibling is that the parents are having difficulty with the fact that their sibling is no longer there. It's a reality. The child who died is not gonna come back to their bedroom. And it's heartbreaking. But if you leave the bedroom all set up exactly as it was, it suggests that they're going to. And that's confusing to a sibling. And it becomes sort of a shrine. The sibling doesn't know, can I go in there and play? What if I go in there and play? Am I being like, you know, they would wish they were here and playing and I'm using their toys or, you know, lying on their bed. So it is easiest over time, it does not need to be right away, that you begin to find ways to allocate the things that the child who died had, including some to the sibling donating because many things could be used by other people, uh, giving them to extended family. My daughter who died loved cows and collected cows. And in the first years after she died in my suitcase, I took a baby cow. Whenever we went away, I needed to have something of hers with me. We did not keep her bed and her room the same, but I was able to, and this is what I wanna recommend, if you do not keep everything the same, you still can have some concrete things 
that help you feel connected to the person who died. And I often recommend the parents ask a sibling, is there anything of your siblings that you'd like to have? And they can say no, or they might say everything, you know, I mean, or whatever it is, but you work with it because it allows them, it's a thing, but we imbue things with meaning. Mm -hmm. So I also recommend it's not a hundred things. Let's, because <laughs> that can happen too. Let's select two or three things that you would like of your siblings that you can keep for yourself and do with what you want. And then, well, two or three, you know, I really liked that toy truck they had, you know, that kind of thing. And some of the things may be just things they wish they'd had and they envied their sibling had. Others might be like their sibling's favorite t-shirt mm -hmm. just because they remember seeing them in it. You want to send a message to your child that even though it's painful, we remember people with smaller amounts of things and in our hearts that we are learning to come to terms with the fact that that child is not coming back, mm -hmm. which is really hard. We still live in the house where Cameron died in her bedroom. We still call her room Cameron's room. It is now the guest room. Beds are different, the color is different, mm -hmm. but several pieces of art on the wall remain. So that's the sort of- Yes, middle ground. Still the name. There was a period of time where I wondered if people would get freaked out that I was sending our guests to sleep in the room of our, you know, the daughter who died. But it's like, you know, they they had to get over that. Good um, for you. <laughs> yes, that's their problem. <laughs> their problem. This book has a lot about what are natural ways that children can manifest their grief. You do flag though. I'm just going to read it aloud. The time to consult a professional on behalf of your grieving child is when the grief stops the child from carrying out her usual daily tasks, responsibilities, and social activities. You say after six weeks. We often know time. that grief yes. goes up and down and zigs and zags, and it's not right. linear, which right. I really appreciated your flagging. Can you elaborate more meatier way than the words here on this page about to sort of parents going, oh, I wonder if it's time to get somebody outside? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, even though I'm a child and adult psychiatrist, I don't recommend therapy for everybody. Just like people think surgeons recommend surgery for everybody. But I believe that um, you know sometimes it's not called for, even when there's a big loss. We picked six weeks. It's a random amount of time. And you as a parent know your child. But there are certain things that when not being able to carry out their daily activities, they're not eating. They're not sleeping. If they're sleeping in bed with you, okay, you know, that has to go on for a while. But if they're not sleeping at all, if they're staying in their room and not talking to anybody, if at school they're withdrawn and in the corner, if they're spending a lot of time at school going to the school nurse with the various, you know, aches and pains that are there but also indicate upset, if they're acting up, incredibly like angry throwing things i mean children have a right to feel angry when their sibling dies as well if they're acting up in class sometimes children regress if they start to wet the bed again baby talk comes back sometimes these are markers that the child is overwhelmed with what's going on you can spend some time recognizing that trying to help them with it but often in that circumstance 
pretty soon it's time to call in a professional. And that's a gift to the child because the child knows that you as a parent are grieving also. And when they go to a therapist or a religious counselor or a school counselor, they know that they don't have to take care of that person as much. So it gives them a forum to let it all out, all the things that they worry mommy and daddy would be too upset to handle. Despite mom and dad's best interests or mom and mom and dad and dad, if your child is overwhelmed with the feelings and it is going on for several weeks, you know, th these things can come back. Suddenly it's Christmas and your child was moving along pretty well. And then it's Christmas time and they revert back to things they were doing right after their sibling died. And that may be a time to call in someone because, you know, you give it a little bit of time and see, but it means that there's stuff stirred up in there that they're not knowing what to do with. As you say often in here, as children hit new developmental milestones, they will be revisited by their loss and their reaction to that may show up in new ways that are disruptive or difficult. And so hopefully the parent-child relationship can name it and work through it. But some of it is quite oblique. It's not obvious what the source of the problem is. Right. And then you might need to call in somebody who's trained in the hidden markers of grief. <laughs> I was referred to a little girl. I talk about this in the book. And her parents brought her to me because she was refusing to sleep on her own. There had been a death in the family, and, and they had not talked to the daughter about it because it was a distant relative. As she and I, the little girl and I, talked and played, she told me she was afraid to sleep alone because something was really upsetting mommy and daddy. In that case, it was a mommy and daddy. And she thought somebody had died, but they weren't telling her. And so how was it manifest? By a difficulty sleeping. There was no overt words that said, I'm scared about this. So for a sibling, when they get to be a teenager, if their sibling died when they were younger, they may start doing a lot of drugs. You know, maybe they're cutting class. Maybe they're withdrawing and not going and doing anything with friends. It's a tough thing because you don't want everything in the child's life to be, it must be about your sibling who died, because they are many, many things besides that. But I would put it in there as one of the things to consider, because it was a monumental event in their life. Absolutely. Elena, would you please read on page 144? We know that none of us is easy, but we do believe that a certain amount of peace and understanding will come about after having multiple conversations with your child about an impending death, and that these conversations prior to the death can mean that everyone will have an easier time handling the loss when it happens. In our experience, we have seen that once children learn that a loved one will die, they begin to internally process the news in a way that helps to prepare them for the eventual death. This is called anticipatory grief. It does not take away the sadness and shock and all the other emotions they may feel and will feel again when the person dies, but it does bring about a sense of preparedness. Sometimes young children are astonished after a loved one has died that the world can go on. This highlights that the best time to intervene and reassure children is before a death. It's helpful to let your child know that the family will continue to cope 
after the person has died and that she will continue to be loved and cared for. You would hope to convey in your conversations that what is happening is upsetting, but that you all going to get to the other side together. Thank you so much. Here's the other thing I'd love for you to read. There is always hope, the last chapter. We discourage use of the phrase and concept of moving on after a death because people don't leave a death behind. We believe the path to healing, to engaging joyfully in life after a loss is by incorporating that loss into the fabric of your sense of yourself and your life story by moving forward with the loss. A death will shape the rest of you and your child's life in painful and even positive ways. Your child may need to process his understanding of a death many times as he matures and he sees the way his life and his sense of self are directly affected by loss. I have only one more question for you. Sure. Can you revisit, please, why the title Giving Hope? You know, when we first started to conceptualize writing this book, it was the primary thing we had in mind. Because when you're facing a loss, and let's say you have a sibling who died, it's hard to believe that things are going to get better or that anybody's going to be okay again. It breaks through a child's sense of safety. So what I think part of what we do as parents, what we want to give them is a sense that the world can still be a safe place, that there are things to look forward to, and that they are learning about how to understand themselves in the face of this. And because they went through such a hard thing, they are going to be stronger people because of it. As you said earlier, we don't want to become strong that way, but we can. And that is going to help us as we move forward with the rest of life. Hope comes from experiencing yourself as capable of handling difficult situations and of managing after such a devastating loss. I would bet that Taylor probably wasn't sure, you know, like, would anything ever be okay again after Cameron died? I know that my daughter felt that. We felt it. But if you have a sense that this is something we can get through and we were going to do it together, then you can feel hopeful about the future. Mm -hmm. And I think a parent has a really great opportunity to provide that if they are willing to talk with their child openly, openly, honestly, and gently. Do you wrestle with the word hope? I couldn't get away from using hope. It is a powerful concept, but we, we overuse it. And I have not come up with an equivalent positive outlook, belief in oneself. There really isn't anything that captures it. I remember when our daughter was ill, the pediatrician who was taking care of us regularly, regular care, said, there's always hope it may need to be redefined. And I have that in our book because it was very helpful to me that you change instead of hoping maybe for cure, you hope for an easier day. Elena, thank you so very, very, very much for this conversation. This sort of wisdom is evergreen. Nothing you've said will not be true 10 years from now. So thank you for converting your own experience into the work that you do in clinical practice as an educator and as an author of this book. And I will just close by saying I encourage any parent caring for a seriously ill child, especially when there are other children, to go and get a copy of the book, Giving Hope, Conversations with Children About Illness, Death, and Loss.
it will serve you well for forever, actually, because there are lots of ways that this will continue. Loss happens in lots of different ways over the course of our lifetimes. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.